This episode of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by House of Blood Volume 1, a new four-issue horror comic series from Zach Chapman. Zach is running a Kickstarter for House of Blood Volume 1 from now until March 17th, so everyone please head on over to kickstarter.com and lend him your support. Zach is a longtime Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener and regular guest, who you may remember from our panels on video game movies. He's also been on the show to discuss animated TV shows such as Love, Death, and Robots, Blood of Zeus, and Masters of the Universe Revelation. And if you've heard those panels, you'll know that Zach really knows his stuff. House of Blood Volume 1 contains 13 chilling tales, featuring colorful characters such as the fallen paladin Bog Knight, cursed to betray his king and rise from the mire as an inhuman monster, and Count Irvin Quartermain, an evil venture capitalist always looking for the next quick buck, whether it's selling a ghost or stealing your sight. Other stories feature possessed Russian rappers, far-future space cults, evil phone apps, yoga body horror, a haunted video rental store, and much more. Back the project for as little as $5 to receive a digital download of Issue 1. At $25 and up, you'll receive a physical copy of House of Blood Volume 1, which contains all four issues, over 115 pages of fully colored sequential art. Max Booth III, writer of We Need to Do Something, writes, House of Blood is a true horror sicko's delight. Every panel is a celebration of horror at its most fun. Gnarly creatures, wacky science fiction nightmares, and the kinds of characters who make you howl with laughter when they meet their gruesome demise. I dare you to read these comics without a big slobbering grin across your face. So again, the project is called House of Blood Volume 1 by Zach Chapman, and you can find it on Kickstarter from now until March 17th. Alright, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 502 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the movie Ghostbusters Afterlife, a direct sequel to the two original Ghostbusters films from the 80s. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the movie, so just beware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 24th appearance on the show. She's a trans-supporting Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and lives in Connecticut with a Renaissance engineer in a small zoo. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Then next up, we've got Christopher M. Savasco, making his 14th appearance on the show. His novel, Beheld, will be published by Lethe Press in April. It's a darkly twisted psychological thriller set in 11th century England, exploring the legend of Lady Godiva's naked ride through Coventry. Chris is also the former editor of Paradox Magazine, and he's written 20 Dungeons & Dragons supplements, including the best-selling Philosial's Ultimate Guide to Poison, which are available now through the DMs Guild website. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, glad to be back. And also joining us today is Robert Rapino, making his fourth appearance on the show. He's the author of the War With No Name series, which includes the sci-fi novels Mort, Dark, Cul-de-Sac, and Malefactor, as well as the middle-grade fantasy novels Spark in the League of Ursus and Spark in the Grand Sleuth. So, Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm the baby of the group. Glad to be back. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's start with the baby of the group and have you tell us about your history with the Ghostbusters franchise. All right. Um, I'll try to take that personally. Um, yeah, I, I saw Ghostbusters in the theater twice when I was six years old. I have a very vivid memory of 
going with some older kids and them saying, uh, oh, Rob's going to be scared. <laughs> and I was like, no, I won't. Um, so, you know, Ghostbusters is just very u- ubiquitous. I mean, all the toys. I remember when there were two competing uh, cartoons. I saw Ghostbusters 2 in the theater, and like most people thought that it was inferior, but it was okay. Um, I never played the 2009 video game, which I hear is kind of an unofficial Ghostbusters 3. Um, and I saw Ghostbusters 2016 in the theater. Um, I was disappointed in it, although I think the backlash against it is one of the most bizarre and unhinged things ever, and just kind of a weird harbinger of uglier things to come. Um, so yeah, that's my relationship with it. I think that's a well, quick well, so summary. You, you said the kids were all like, oh, Rob's going to be scared. So were you scared? Uh, when the, I remember when the lights go, went out, I went, oh God. But then <laughs> the movie was so silly. You know, it really, um, once you got past the first ghost, I think it was mostly uh, silliness. So well, I was okay. Well, I survived. Well, well, you know, the original Ghostbusters is actually the first movie I saw multiple times in theaters. I think I saw it five times. And mm. I had to cover my eyes during the library ghost scene every single time. So <laughs> it, it scared it scared me for sure. Um, it's no joke. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, Sarah? What's your history with the Ghostbusters franchise? I grew up on Ghostbusters and I love the cartoon and I love the original movie. I have no memory of Ghostbusters 2 and I watched it again uh, over the weekend and I remembered why I didn't remember it, basically. It was, like, just all over the place. Um, And my favorite Ghostbusters movie is honestly uh, Ghostbusters 2016. A lot of people don't really understand the humor. It's it's very much humor that was specifically made for internet feminists uh, who grew up on Ghostbusters and who were sort of denied being able to see themselves as Ghostbusters because, you know, they were a bunch of men. And so all of the humor is based on that. And that's a very niche sense of humor. And so I know plenty of dudes who don't like it, who are lovely people. And then of course I know, or have, you know, heard from multiple dudes who feel like, you know, it sort of robbed them of their childhood. And those are the people who are like, yeah, I I think there's some misogyny in there. Um, But for me, it's my absolute favorite. Okay. Well, well, yeah, maybe come, we'll come back to that. I mean, I, I guess I'll just say, I mean, yeah, I loved the original Ghostbusters. Agree with you about Ghostbusters 2. I, I never really liked it, even as a kid. Um, Ghostbusters 2016, I, I thought was pretty funny at the beginning, but I sort of it sort of wore out its welcome for me as it went on. And um, it felt a little like, like lacking in a, like a grounded reality. Like the original Ghostbusters um sort of feels to me like it's like takes place in a real new york city with real people who really live in new york city and um and stuff like that and the ghostbusters 2016 just felt a little bit more over the top to me um but i thought it was all right um and then so how about chris what's your your history with the yeah i mean i i think a lot of it's going to sound fairly similar i saw it in the theater back in the day i was probably what it came out in 1984 right so i would have been about 12 ish um, and I, I, you know, I can't say for certain, but it might have been the first movie that I saw multiple times in the theater, too, because um, that wasn't something I did very often, certainly back then. Um, and I do remember seeing it more than once in the theater. The the second one I just remember being bored by, which is sort of an unforgivable sin when it's, you know, supposed to be a wild madcap romp with scary ghosts. <laughs> I mean, like I was I just remember it being very boring. Um I loved the the 2016 one. I like it hit my funny bone exactly where it I think was intending <laughs> to hit it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I loved sort of ca- 
casting the sort of incel as the villain and all, all that kind of stuff was was really clever and a, a real, um, you know, uh, just sort of a timely tweak to to the genre. Um, I I thought the 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 cartoon I remember watching as a kid, but on, only the one that I guess was called the real Ghostbusters or whatever. Yeah, um, there's no other. There's no other one. Yeah, Robert, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do. Imagine. I guess maybe I was. I, I have vague uh, memories of there being something else called a Ghostbusters cartoon, but I don't. Yeah, I don't remember really ever seeing it or or anything. Um, but no, I enjoyed that. I liked uh, all of the sort of call outs to other genre things that they did in it. Um, so yeah, that's basically, you know, where I was when I watched this latest one. Mm-hmm. And so, so Robert, so you said the 2016 one, you said that, um, you know, you thought the backlash and everything was, was unhinged. If, if people listening to this don't know, like basically, you know, this was the, it was sort of like an all female reboot of Ghostbusters. And so there were a lot of, there's a lot of comments on the internet about how, what a, <laughs> Uh, what's the word? Uh, just you know, uh, how bla- it was almost like blasphemous or, uh, or something to to do this to <laughs> Ghostbusters. But um, uh, but so what did you think? Just like on on an artistic level, you said it was you weren't blown away by it, or yeah, I wasn't that crazy about it. I thought that um, I I guess for for I think similar to what you said, I think the the improvisational humor of it, rather than relying on on jokes, I felt that kind of just um, ran out of steam by the end of the movie. I also heard that the theatrical cut removed a big plot point that made the third act kind of not, I mean, apparently by removing that plot point, the third act is less satisfying. I've heard that there's some director's cut that makes a little more sense because the the way the movie ends is, um, I believe, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting the names of the characters, but one of the characters kind of abandons the group and then comes back at the last minute to help them out. Um, and I think in the theatrical version, they didn't fully explain why that happened. And I remember watching them and being like, wait, what just happened here? I've heard uh, since then that, that the editing that they did kind of undermined the storytelling of it. Um, but yeah, I liked the cast and I think that like, it was a cool idea. Um, so, and I yeah, never, my know. issue of it was, it was not like they're robbing my childhood. I mean, <laughs> good Lord. Well, that's, you know, I just went back and listened to our, the last panel we did about the 2016 movie. And, and that was a pretty constant theme in that discussion was everyone was sort of like, oh, I wonder if there's more to this. I wonder if, you know, there's more that developed the characters and stuff like that. So that's interesting to hear that, that, that there actually, apparently there was. Um, yeah, there is, that's something you can research. There's something out there, but I, I, uh, well, that's what Google's for. Yeah. All right, cool. So, um, so Sarah, what were your expectations going into this new movie, uh, given that you had enjoyed the last one so much? I was a little bit concerned that they were sort of making it, you know, so many movies these days are sort of made for focus groups because, and, you know, in some ways, like it, it happened with obviously the last Star Wars movie was an absolute mess because they were trying to please too many people instead of just letting filmmakers film make make films um and you know let them decide what the vision should be and uh i was really worried about that that happening with this one but i was very pleased um 
you know, Phoebe, it, to me, it's the Phoebe and podcast show. I absolutely love hmm. Phoebe and podcast. They are the best. And to me, they made the whole thing work. A lot of the other characters were sort of wasted or two dimensional. Uh, the teenage boy whose name I'm not even remembering, um, you know, felt yeah. sort of uh, Tre- like a Trev- Trevor. I think. Yeah, he was like but a caricature. Yeah. And Phoebe was this wonderfully well-developed, you know, fully four dimensional character. She was great. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of. Uh, surprising but i feel like phoebe and podcast kind of carried it yeah well let me explain so so this new movie it's directed by jason reitman who's the son of ivan reitman who directed the first two ghostbusters movies and it picks up whatever 35 years after ghostbusters 2 and um so our main characters are yeah like a teenage boy and girl who like spoiler warning, but we find out are the grandchildren of Egon Spengler, who was one of the, you know, Harold Ramis's Ghostbuster from the original movie. And they've never interacted with him. He, he, he's been estranged from their, their mother, his daughter, all these years. But after he dies under mysterious circumstances, uh, they inherit his creepy old farmhouse. And, um, and then they, so they move out to this uh, small town in Oklahoma, I think, and uh, kind of, become new residents of the town and sort of pick up what, what the business that he was involved, involved in. Um, so, so Chris, uh, kind of what were your expectations going into this movie and kind of first impressions of it? Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a whole heck of a lot, uh, in terms of expectations, you know, good or bad. Um, I just was, curious, I think, just to see what it was going to be. I I mean, I was intrigued by the fact that it was supposedly, you know, a direct sequel and, uh, you know, how they were going to uh, link back to the original films all these years later and all the rest of it. And um, first of all, let me say, I agree. Uh, Phoebe and podcast, I I would actually add, I I really enjoyed Paul Rudd's Gruberson character as well. Um, I think the three of them are sort of together but uh the 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 glue that holds it together but i agree my absolute favorite character was phoebe um she's just fantastic and if they do any sequels i assume uh you know because they kind of left the door open to that at the end i assume she'll be you know the focus of any sort of sequel um so i hope uh she is if they do that uh the you know I, i think the weakest part of this was the actual plot uh which was barely there. Um, and a lot of it was kind of contrived. I mean, uh, you know, up to and including the whole estrangement, which just felt like they needed them to be estranged so that this was all a mystery. But none of that really felt organic to me uh, that they would have had no contact at all and and known nothing, you know, over all these decades about what their grandfather was doing. So, uh, you know, the, the story itself was kind of threadbare, but I was willing to forgive that because I was having so much fun just spending time with the characters. I loved all the nostalgia and callbacks to the original one. Um, so, it, you know, I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed it from beginning to end. Um, you know, it, no, no, nothing, uh, no, no, nothing that's going to win any sort of Academy Awards or anything, but, you know, <laughs> it was, it was a fun popcorn film, which is what, you know, the originals were only ever intended to be. So I, I had, I had a yeah. good time. Yeah, well, and, and I'll say, I mean, um, I went into this with very low expectations. I mean, I feel like like nobody I knew was talking about it. I was actually surprised to see that it had come out because I had heard so little um, like hype about it. Um, so I went in with pretty low expectations, and it started out, and I actually thought it was really good at the beginning. I mean, it had this sense of more grounded reality, like the, to my mind, like the first one does, where, you know, like the... Um, I th- and I thought for like a Ghostbusters movie, it actually 
did a pretty good job of capturing like the travails of single motherhood and like what it's like being a kid moving to a new town and stuff like that. Like all that felt pretty, um, you know, felt pretty realistic to me. Um, and it, it, it just, yeah. So it sort of felt more like the original Ghostbusters to me and like the music and everything was all like very, very, um, you know, very, very much in the same mood and everything as the original. So, so my, and I, I liked the characters. I agree that Phoebe was fantastic. I actually thought the mom was really good. Um, I, I thought all those characters that you're introduced to initially, um, I, I liked them a lot and I was, I was really into it. Like, so for the first, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes, uh, I, I don't really have any complaints at all. I thought, I thought it was all really great actually. Um, Robert, do you can, do you concur with everything I just said there? <laughs> Um, a, a good amount of it. I, uh, well, let me just start with the expectations, which I mean, my expectations were pretty low. I, I didn't like the fact, I mean, first of all, it was coming out from Sony, which I think has earned a reputation for kind of just producing products rather than making films. Um, and, um, I was weirded out, um, by the way that they initially introduced this, which, which seemed to be, uh, catering to the people who really like trashed the 2016 one so they're saying things like we're going to give the movie back to the fans it's like can everybody calm down please um <laughs> so that that weirded me out um i would say that so i already was looking at going to this thinking this is like ill-conceived and kind of cynical i think most of it is really well executed i think the special effects are fantastic i think the acting is great i i agree the phoebe character is great um a lot of the dialogue is uh clever maybe sometimes too clever but i get it you have to make kids sound smarter than they probably are in real life. In real life, they'd, be, they'd all be like, uh, 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 like, like, you know, so I get, I get that they have to make it a little more clever. I wish that they had not dialed up the sentimentality so high. I feel like they were really pushing for a tearjerker at the end of the film, which I, I it, it, which is kind of unusual for this um, franchise. So the, the ending of it, it felt like I was seeing something that I had already seen a bunch of times. Okay, let's and let's I, not get into the ending. Oh, okay, yet. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll just say, went for sentimentality, that, and I think it's debatable about how well it earned it. I guess that's my main criticism of it. Um, but overall, yeah. I think this is a good movie for kids, definitely. And and I thought it was fine. I thought, you know, I, I just, I have a few criticisms, but we will... That's what the rest of this prep podcast is yeah. for. I well, let, right. let me just say about the... Um, yeah, so in, in a podcast interview, Jason Reitman said uh something about we're giving it back to the fans which i think was definitely uh you know sort of an ill-judged comment yeah. like from from what i from what i read <laughs> i think it was probably just like him putting his foot in his mouth and not really intending to to send that message because you know I, there was this there was sort of this back and forth with him and paul feig who directed the 2016 movie where he said like no no jason was really supportive when that movie came out and talked it up and you know, and like, we're both, we both admire each other and stuff. So I, I don't, my impression at this point, at least was not that it was like an intentional dig at the 2016 thing. I think just sometimes when you're speaking off the cuff and trying to hype up your movie, you might say something, you know, dumb, but, um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that, yeah, that there was a perception of this movie as like 20, the 2016 movie was a mistake and we're not, and, and tr like tried to do something different and, there was this big revolt among some section of the fan base and we're just going to try to like go back to the tried and true and just give the fans exactly what they want. Um, and so I guess, Sarah, do you want to, did, did you going into this, did you perceive this as like a, a dig at the previous movie or like, 
Did you yeah, have that, any feelings about it? Because that's that. what I I meant when I when I said I worried about it being made for a focus group. And I I you know I I have a wonderful habit of not finishing my thoughts and launching into something else. But I you know I I did de- definitely feel that, and so I waited to watch this because I was like eh, I'm not really feeling it. Um, for that very reason. And I mean, the Ghostbusters 2016 movie is, is my favorite for very specific reasons. And, you know, Paul Feig, I love Paul Feig. Like he did a simple favor and a simple favor is one of the funniest movies I've ever watched in my life. Um, and you know, he really understands sort of gender politics humor. Um, I don't know how else to, to describe it, but it's a very specific thing, but it is hilarious when it is done right. But yeah, I definitely picked up on a lot of the uh, the sort of cynical stuff coming out, and it was yeah, it was incredibly groan worthy, especially for how much I loved the the film. And and you know, again, like I'm I am the fans just as much as the average dude who is Gen X is the fans. And I was when every time you know I hear something like oh they're giving it back to the fans, it's like hello, who do you think I am? Like <laughs> I grew up on this shit too, and to me you know, Ghost, Ghostbusters 2016 or Answer the Call was made just for me. What, what is, does everyone agree with my my impression that this is not gotten a lot of people talking about it and was a little bit you know, like it came out and didn't make a lot of, I mean, it, particularly in, in compa- comparison to the tsunami of controversy that accompanied 2016, I, I felt like, I don't know if I just missed it or did, did anyone, does anyone disagree that this movie has sort of seen, seem to kind of come and gone without a lot of discussion. No, I agree with that. And I, and I, it gives me a small amount of pleasure because <laughs> I'm like, well, that's <laughs> what happens when you, when you sort of make a, a movie that's a regurgitation of, it's kind of like what happened with Star Trek. You know, Star Trek got to the point where it was making copies of itself, you know, to, towards the mid middle end of Voyager, it was making copies of itself. Enterprise was it making copies of itself and the Berman era had sort of died out and all they knew how to do was make Dolly the Sheep clones. And they really had to completely reimagine it in order to, you know, go forward with Star Trek. And so for Ghostbusters, it's kind of like, well, when you give the people what they say they want, there's also this sense where it's like, oh, well, we've already had this. <laughs> it's like, well, you, you get one or the other. You don't, you don't really get to have both brand new and exciting and a new way of doing this and also have that comfort food that you want. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 I mean, the thing about Ghostbusters is that every thing that I've read about the criticisms can be, it can be seen that way for all of the Ghostbusters films. All of them are campy. All of them have stupid humor. All of them have, you know, an ending that's usually way too overblown and silly and ridiculous and goes on too long. You know, so it's <laughs> this is what Ghostbusters is all about. It's it's ridiculous and it's campy and it's fun. I mean, Stop. I oh, go ahead, Robert. Stop ruining my childhood. No, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I had to sque- I had to sneak that in there. Please go ahead, David. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, but but for me, like I said, that this movie felt a little bit more grounded in the at the beginning. And there was really a point for me where there was sort of a, a turn where it kind of lost me. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I watched it. I, I, I think it's like great fan service. I don't think it's much more than that, but I, I think it could have been more than that. But there, there's a part where, so the, um, you know, the kids that kind of uh, discover Egon's secret basement laboratory and get proton packs and, and everything and start bu- busting ghosts. And then 
after they bust their first ghost, they get uh, sent to jail. And everything up until then, I was I was pretty much into the movie. And then the um, uh, Phoebe, the the teenage daughter, she says, you know, I I want my one phone call. And the police chief says, who are you going to call? And which if you're I don't know if you're if you're younger than I am or something, that's a that was like the catchphrase for the original movie. And so it's this very obvious um, like joke, you know, or like meta, you know, meta joke. And and, and I was like kind of at that point, I was kind of like, oh, no, here we go. And and from that point, the, it just got more and more <laughs> like self-referential and just shoveling <laughs> all the stuff that you remember at you, just piling it higher and higher and higher and higher. Um, so that by the end of the movie, I felt like just the weight of all the the in jokes and references and callbacks and nostalgia had just completely buried any kind of story or characters underneath it. Um, so so that was kind of my overall take on the movie was that. Uh, you know, I, I, as much as I liked the the nostalgia stuff, it just went way, way overboard by the end of the movie. And I think this could have been something a lot better if they had come up with a third act that wasn't just a recapitulation of the third act from the original Ghostbusters. Well, if I, uh, yeah, go ahead. So, so yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, looking at what this film does and what the 2016 film does, um, I, you know, one can one can question whether or not we need to be making all these remakes and reboots that we're making across the board. But, it, you know, the ones that tend to be successful are the ones that don't just, you know, re- re- do a frame by frame remake, but actually try and explore something different with it. And in 2016, I think that was, you know, leaning into the comedy side of it more so than the, you know, spooky world building. Um, and, you know, and kind of updating it for, for, a, modern, for a modern audience and, um, you know, th- that sort of thing. And I think that it did that really well, which is at least for, for me and for others like Sarah that, that enjoyed it. I think that's why it succeeded, because it didn't just retread old ground. It, it forged, uh, you know, sort of a, it, it reimagined yeah. it, uh, you know, turned, turned tr- you know, reexamined some of the tropes that from the original thing, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we got this new film, I mean... I, I think it was interesting and I, I was very interested as, as, you know, a, a fan of the franchise to see, okay, well, how are they going to return to the old? But I think there were so many missed opportunities where they could have done that and could have maintained that sort of nostalgia factor, but still explored new ground. And I think to me, the single biggest missed opportunity was we have a Ghostbuster who becomes a ghost. And the the fact that that sort of went almost unremarked i mean like you know these are people who sp- spent their entire lives studying ghosts and ghostly phenomenon and then you know when when the the other three ghostbusters show up at the end like not one of them you know i would i i wouldn't i wanted to see uh Stan, Ray Stance go over and be like, dude, what's it actually like? What does it feel? <laughs> you know, like, oh my God, this is so cool. We, you're, you know, we actually have an inside man now. We can find out what's happening, you know, or, or even to get some, some sense that, that Spangler who becomes the ghost, you know, how, how is his spirit, you know, reacting to that? I mean, they, I, you know, I felt like there were so, and, and a lot about, you know, I, who knows? I mean, there's any number of ways that could have been explored and it wasn't. And when I saw that little ghost detector go off under his chair after he died, I was like, I, I was so excited because I was like, oh my God, 
one of the Ghostbusters has just become a ghost. This is going to be great. And that was just that that was almost beside the point in the rest of the film. So I I wish they had done more like that, you know, leaned into more of those interesting questions. And it could have made it seem fresh and new while still having all the callbacks for the yeah. nostalgia. No, that, that's that's a great point, Chris. And actually, I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, when, when you said the uh, when you started talking about the missed opportunity, I thought what you were going to say, since you're such a big history buff is this whole idea that I think the name is Evo Shandor, the sort of cult yeah. leader who wants to resurrect ghosts, or that he had created this town and built this town, and this is where they had mined the selenium to build the skyscraper from the first movie. And just the idea that, yeah, that this 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 gozer or Sumerian cult had been operating in this mm-hmm. um, part of Oklahoma for, I think they said, like thousands of years. And like all of that, I thought, would have been really, really interesting to go into and pretty much didn't do anything with that mm. at all. Um, Although in some ways that would have just been kind of retreading because I mean, because you got a lot of that kind of history in in the first ones, too. I mean, yeah, it would have been I would have been interested to hear, you know, more of an explanation. But I still feel like that wouldn't have been what would have pushed the envelope to make it seem fresh, you know. I guess. I mean, the thing is that in the first one, you never met any cultists. Right. So like you could have had Mm -hmm. like this is maybe getting too like (laughs) like more horror movie than comedy movie but you know you could have it could be like a thulu cultist type characters in this town and i don't know it's just that 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 was the part that sort of caught my imagination the most um but i want to i want to get robert back in here too so robert what do you think about this idea of missed opportunities that we're talking about i agree with that i i have to i have to throw in there that um uh jk simmons performance as evo <laughs> shander was very moving <laughs> lasted a full uh, 12 seconds if i recall correctly you blinked and he was gone um actually you know it's interesting you say they should have explored more about the um uh you know what it was like to be a ghost because one of the writers for this film wrote the uh remake for the movie poltergeist and i've not seen the remake of poltergeist but i know in the original that involves a human character going into this uh, other realm of existence and you catch kind of a glimpse of what it looks like in there. So I mm-hmm. wonder if that, you know, one way to push the envelope or just give us something we haven't seen before could have been to send a probe or better yet, one of the characters that we really care about into this other realm to see what's in there. That, that maybe could have been a great, uh, a great thing to explore, I guess. I mean, I I think the problem with making it all about what's it like to be a ghost is that Harold Ramis is no longer alive. Mm. And so to create this character, they had to do CGI and they had him not talk. And I'm sure that's because it would have just seemed cheesy for him to talk. I mean, so the idea of basing the whole movie around that seems to like if if he was still alive and you wanted to do that. I I wonder. No, no, go ahead. I wonder as well as if, you know, if if uh, Harold Ramis could have raised some awareness about what the ghosts actually want, then maybe to hu- to hu- dare I say, humanize the ghosts a little more. Cause um, you know, maybe he could say like, Hey guys, this work you're doing is pretty important, but you've actually like harmed some of the other ghosts that are, that are just like trying to hang out and not really bothering anyone. Or so there could have been some, something like that happening. Um, so maybe that's, maybe that's a missed opportunity as well, but uh, yeah. just throwing that out there. Well, how about Sarah? What do you think about the, would you want to have made this movie more about what it's like to be a ghost ghostbuster? I mean, I, I think that there's definitely room for improvement on a number of levels. Um, and that's a possible thing that they could have done to add a little bit more interest, especially since I feel like the gozer thing 
is entirely too overdone at this point. Like you, you know, you just like, why, why did it have to be Gozer? Like again, and it, you know, the ending is just drawn out and a little silly. Um, so, you know, to have more of that, sure. But I did like how they handled, um, you know, Egon not saying anything because I do think that, that, that made the character more mysterious and more believable. And there is, you know, there isn't that weird disconnect that happens when there's obviously way too much CGI going on. And, you know, and I really liked the, you know, the fact that Phoebe immediately accepts that her grandfather is a ghost and showing her stuff around the house, you know, and starts playing chess with her and stuff like that. And she just kind of like, okay, this is weird, but I accept it. And, you know, it's just kind of very, cool for the character that she really is approaching this as a scientist she's interested by it she immediately understands what's going on she's not scared you know she's not freaked out overstimulation calms me which is one of my favorite lines in the in Hmm. the whole whole movie Hmm. so i mean i feel like there's there's so much potential to take ghostbusters to a new place entirely and one of the things that they could deal with in that new place is they could you know, actually spend more time with the ghosts. They could make a scary Ghostbusters, one that's genuinely scary, where the stakes are actually high, where people are actually killed. They could do all kinds of things. But because we live in this era where movie studios want the pre-approval of fans before they go and spend millions of dollars on something, we don't get to have that. We don't, we don't get nice things. And it's hmm. funny because there's this Venn diagram between what the people who are always asking for new stuff and complaining about reboots and the people who get mad when they actually make a new thing where that middle section is quite a strong, you know, it's really fat middle section there of, of the people who, you know, the same people who are asking for new stuff are the people who are like, it's new and different. I don't like it. And time and time again, movie studios are learning that when they take risks and do something different, they're not rewarded for doing that. And so it's like, well, what do you expect? So I feel like Ghostbusters in general, the franchise could go all kinds of different interesting directions, but I don't know if we're going to get that because I don't think that we've done enough work to deserve it. And just to be clear, Dave, I'm also extremely glad that they did not have Spangler speak. I I would not have wanted him to speak. And, and, you know, if they had explored this more, I think they, you know, we found out so much about him just in those scenes with Phoebe interacting with a an unseen presence. Um, yeah. You started to get a feel for it. I mean, they could have done more of that. Maybe they could, I mean, they could have used other techniques. Like you could have been seeing the living people from the perspective of the ghost or something. You could, you know, there could have been all different ways, but really it was more just that uh, Dan Aykroyd's character uh, stance and whatever, who's always used to be so enthusiastic and exuberant about everything that he wouldn't have at least been trying to question and ask. Bang. They're like, what? Come on. You got to tell us what it's like, dude you know, that kind of thing. Like there was just sort of no reaction yeah. from the other Ghostbusters. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by Sarah's suggest- suggestion to make this actually scary. Mm. I mean, that kind of ties in with my Evo Shandor cult idea too, is you could make it like, uh, I don't know, like the Wicker Man or, or something. Um, I don't know. I, again, that would probably, you would probably have a fan revolt on your hand. <laughs> but I mean, that that sounds cool. I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know if they, if because they, because it's like I'm not excited at all about the idea of. I mean, I, like I said, I enjoyed this movie just fine, but I'm not at all excited about a sequel to this movie if it's mm. just kind of more of the same, right? So, but if they were to make a sequel that's yeah more like a uh, 
like a genuine horror movie or, you know, like, a, I don't know, Evil Dead or or something where it's like funny and, uh, you know, genuinely like disturbing or frightening or something. Yeah, that would be that would be really interesting. I also think that something interesting happened with the critical response. Uh, well, the fandom response, really, of Afterlife, where, you know, the studio was trying so hard to give the quote unquote fans what they wanted and, you know, give them their nostalgia and everything. But these people were still mad because I did hear some, you know, I, I saw some some Internet comments go by of dudes who were mad that, you know, they that Phoebe, for instance, that it, the whole thing was about Phoebe. And it's funny because, you know, the studio kind of had a choice. They could say, well, there's a lot of reaction, a lot of hate uh, of, of the 2016 movie. And they're saying it's not misogyny. So we're going to go with that. And we're going to, we're just going to pretend like it's not misogyny and do them that, you know, service of thinking the best of them. Right. And as it turns out, it is misogyny because even with afterlife, they were still mad. And so it's like, you're, you're not going to make these people happy no matter what you do. So you might as well experiment, go forth in new directions and see what happens. Yeah. I can't believe anyone didn't like Phoebe. I thought she was so good. She was. Uh, I thought that actress just, just did such a good job. Um, Robert, any, uh, any reactions to anything we've been saying here? Uh, this all makes sense to me. I'm, I'm thinking of a, um, I was like, there's got to be a script floating around at, at Bloomhouse for a scary <laughs> Ghostbusters, right? You, they're the people to do it, right? Get it to Jordan Peele or something? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I agree as well that, like, you're, you're not going to satisfy these folks. Um, I mean, the Phoebe character, you know, if you were making her with the assumption, like, well, maybe these people aren't really misogynistic. Like, they made a character who is essentially just like Egon. Um, yep. So... The idea that someone would be, be offended by that or be like, well, why do you have to change everything around? Like, it's, it's Egon again. What do you, what do you, yep. <laughs> like, if, you, if you're in the camp of like, stop ruining my 80s childhood, like, this is the character you should be rooting for. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's all I have to add there. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, speaking of the 80s, let me get into this thing about how, so, so, so this takes place. Like I said, you know, 35 years after the original Ghostbusters and like, you know, the Ghostbusters in universe were like, everybody knows that that happens. Everybody knows that a giant marshmallow man walked around New York City. Everyone knows that the Ghostbusters used the Statue of, like walked around in the Statue of Liberty. They were on the cover of Time magazine and all this stuff. And in this movie, uh, this seems to have not changed the world in any way. To the extent that people don't even really talk about it and kids don't even apparently learn about it in school or like anything. And I don't know. I just want to bring that up. Like, what do people think about that? I mean, I know it's a comedy movie and everything, but. Yeah, that's another uh, thing that drives me crazy, actually, because I don't find that realistic at all. Like, you know, when when anything happens, like, okay, I get that we reject things that don't culturally, we reject things that don't follow the script of Western programming, you know, and especially like. The, the part of the Western world that sort of leans into Christianity and, you know, the idea that if there is an afterlife, it's some sort of heaven hell situation and there can't possibly be ghosts. You can't really have it both ways. Like with, with movies like this, you know, they don't get to be on the cover of time magazine and then also exist in this reality where nobody remembers because that doesn't work. You need to either have them be on the cover of time magazine and everybody 
still talks about this. Like I buy that the kids wouldn't know about it uh, because, you know, it's a generational thing, much like, you know, we meet people now or I, I meet people now who were born after 9-11, which absolutely blows my mind, um, you know, and they they have no memory of of that time. That's fine. But there would be a lot more about it than, you know, if this huge thing happened in New York City, then, you know, just some obscure facts and stuff that are is yeah. a, lives on blogs well, and on YouTube on the Internet. Well, and not just a big thing like 9-11, but also having so many metaphysical implications. Yeah. Like, that would just change the world forever, it seems like, if it were, if something supernatural were exactly. to happen so yeah. provably. And so, you know. Yeah. And that would be fun to play with. That would actually be a really fun sequel idea. Like, uh, it's one of the things that I think was missed, missing most in Ghostbusters 2. They could have had a completely different Ghostbusters too, where they had, we're living in this world now where everybody just accepts that ghosts are real. And instead they went backwards and were like, Oh, we, everybody forgot about us and everybody still doesn't believe in ghosts. And it's like, I don't see that working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you could certainly, and this would be another interesting area of exploration a la, um, a la don't look up. You could have huge segments of the population that think, Oh, it was all a hoax. It's, you know, it's a conspiracy. It didn't really happen. Yeah. And that that would be an interesting dynamic. But you would certainly have plenty of people who, you know, scientists who would be doing their PhD thesis on this now, you know, or, you know, it, it would it would change the world in so many ways. I guess the risk is then it would be, well, what would make the Ghostbusters special? But you could come up with something. You could come up with that, oh, everyone's missing the point and we we figured out this is really what's going on, or the ghosts have figured some way around it. I mean, th- there's all kinds of ways around that. Um and I think part of that was why I had trouble with the estrangement between uh, Egon and his daughter. It's like, yeah, his daughter knew he was a hero, too. And yet she treated him like, oh, you know, that's just my wackadoodle dad who d- putters around and is half insane. It's like, no, he saved the world. Like, how would you not know that? How, I mean, that yeah, just seemed yeah. so bizarre to me. Well, well that's why the, why the backstory seems to make no sense on multiple different levels. It's like. Why does he like because they had never had they never spoken? That was the impression that I got. Egon and his daughter was like she had literally never, never talked to him in her life. And it's like that doesn't just happen just because you're like you got busy with other stuff or something, you know, like. Yeah, they Um, never mentioned who the mother was, too. Like, who was Egon's love? Like we they did. They just blew over that entirely. Yeah. So so that doesn't make sense. And then the fact that he like stole all the Ghostbusters equipment, you know, and now they're all pissed off at him like that doesn't make any sense. And then also the idea that, yeah, people think he's just this crazy guy when everybody on Earth knows that he he's literally the scientist who invented the machines that saved the world within living memory of of all the people who are around now. So like. Just all that stuff just made no sense at all. Or when like, they were arrested and and they and they were trying to tell them, no, these are the we have a ghost in there, and uh, you know the the police officer and everyone looking at him like ghost. Yeah, uh, tell me another one. It's like, well, come on, this has happened before. <laughs> like, how is this all <laughs> just like you know? They were treating it as though it was the first Ghostbusters again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. To me, the, the the part that did hurt the most almost was the idea that Ray Stance. The, the most aggressively optimistic and superstitious mm. of them all doesn't believe his friend. And he simply says, I just didn't believe him. There's no explanation. There's no, like I had a competing theory and he had a theory. And then we, he called me a name and ran out or something like that. It, he just says he, he just didn't believe him, which is uh, truly bizarre. I also want to say, 
I think this movie references the events of the first film, but I don't think it references the Statue of Liberty. And to be honest, the Statue of Liberty moving across the water and then colliding with a building is way more intense to me than the the um, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, which ended up just being a big pile of goo anyway. So maybe a conspiracy theorist could say like, oh, somebody just melted a bunch of marshmallow stuff and spread it over the floor. I don't know. But the Statue of Liberty moving, yeah, that would change the world and that would be a lot more uh, alarming uh, than, than the, I mean, not to downplay 9-11, but I mean, that would be up there, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, yeah. it's it would be incredible. Yeah, but I don't even think they reference Ghostbusters 2. And I got the impression, and I, and I read this in some of the reviews as well, that um, it sounds like they, they almost acted as if Ghostbusters 2 never happened but i don't maybe i missed something well, maybe they did reference it i i just well i i didn't catch any ref apparently i i just read that jason reitman said like no no this ghostbusters 2 did happen in this universe and he referenced something about a dancing toaster i i don't apparently there's a dancing toaster from ghostbusters 2 that you see in egon's workshop in this movie um i don't honestly remember ghostbusters 2 at all so i don't honestly if, if you look at the left side of the screen you'll miss all the uh references in the on the right side of the screen and if you rang a bell every time there was a nostalgic reference you'd probably be deaf by the end of this movie <laughs> but uh, but my understanding is that this does supposedly take place in the same continuity as ghostbusters 2 um but but yeah but it but the whole backstory makes no sense and so i just wonder is this whole idea of phoebe going to the grandfather's house and you know discovering his secret laboratory and all this stuff is this just it just has to be in this nonsensical continuity for the story to happen at all. Or, or could you salvage this story with a different backstory that somehow makes sense with, with what happened in the previous Ghostbusters movies? I mean, I think you certainly could have, you know, any number of ways. I I, I mean, here they just basically seemed to give up and just didn't even try. Um, So, you know, I, I, we could brainstorm different ideas and I think we've already, I've heard, some ideas already here during our talk that were better than what they actually did. But, um, you know, just something, I mean, you know, there's always some way to write your way out of a situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree. They, they basically needed to, to have Phoebe show up there and not really know too much about it. And there could be all sorts of ways that you could have had that done, but they just didn't do them. They just sort of ignored it. Yeah. I mean, could it have been that Phoebe is like adopted like 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 somehow Phoebe was raised by someone who doesn't know? Well, OK, this is my OK. This is the other problem, right, is that the emotional resolution of the story is that uh, the mom reconciles with her dad, Egon. And this like doesn't work for me at all. Like, so, like just the idea that um that he would not have spoken, to, you know, that a, a father would not have spoken to his daughter for her entire life for no clear reason. And then she discovers that, oh, but he kept photos of her in his like basement workshop. So now, now we're going to hug at the end. Like it just didn't make any sense to me at all. So like, well, that's the thing. Well, all, all they needed was a little bit of exposition even to explain that. Like it's it really, you know, all that they needed is to say that to have her say, oh, my mom didn't want him around. And she made that very clear, you know, because it it would, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, is the mom, why is the mom sending photos of the, of the daughter? And, you know, it's just, 
it's just really unsatisfying. Like I, I, I'm very much against ha- feeling like, you know, all things need to be over explained. Sometimes it's nice when things are not explained and you can infer and you can imagine and stuff like this. And this was not one of those things that is improved by not, not explaining something. Like it really, they, they just didn't tell us why. And it felt very hollow. Yeah. But but I feel like even if they had explained it in a way that made logical sense, I still wouldn't care because this isn't the mom's story. This is Phoebe's story. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like what happens at the emotion at the climax, whatever emotionally happens at the climax, needs to be about Phoebe. Like so I feel like somehow it has to be about Phoebe's relationship with Egon. And the mom's relationship with Egon can't kind of come in at the last minute and we're supposed to care about that. Um, I mean, I, I cared about that because throughout you could tell that she was very bitter about the fact that that the that the father left. And you can definitely infer that the reason that he left is because he decided that it was more important to save the world. But given the way that he lived, it it's kind of like, OK, but he wasn't off living in a war zone in Afghanistan or something. He was he was living a relatively boring life, you know, buying random equipment from the local hardware store, stuff like that. So it doesn't make any sense why they couldn't have explained why that, I mean, and it's just, you know, it, it was satisfying to me at the end because you, you clearly saw that she's a wounded character because she, she lacked this relationship with him and she always wondered why. And so we understand that he did it because, you know, it was more important to save the world and he made a choice and that becomes clear to her at the end anyway. But there's just so many questions. It leaves so many questions that it's less satisfying than it would have been if they had been able to fill that in a bit. Okay. And I want to get Robert back in here, but just let me, let me just also say, I I wonder if there's just too many characters in the story and did we need, is there like, if you were like, Starting over from scratch, is there any reason why the main character couldn't be Egon's daughter? Like, like basically merge Phoebe and her mom into one character. I feel like Phoebe um, was the main character, though. Well, I'm saying there's sort of like this weird confusion just on a narrative structure level about who the main character is. Um, and it's sort of like a Schrodinger's main character kind of thing between those two characters. But I do want to get I want to get Robert back in oh. here. So, Robert, what do you think about all this? Oh, thanks. I've been uh, I've been listening intently. Uh, I I agree. There are probably too many characters. The character I would probably lose, and I think we've already hinted at that. Might might be uh, Trevor. Um, I yeah. wonder though if uh, and not even it wasn't even bad. It just it just probably wasn't really needed. Um, I wonder how different the movie would be if instead of it instead of characters stumbling upon this secret, it's instead characters who from the very beginning are going to Oklahoma specifically to find out what happened to Egon. So it's, it's a uh, Ghostbusters three, the search for Egon, <laughs> um, you know, that might have gotten things off to a better start. Now, the problem of course, though, is you lose some of that wonder that you have where, you know, Phoebe is for, you know, as, as you just described, Sarah, th- this wonder that Phoebe, Phoebe has where she realized like, Oh wow, my grandfather's ghost is talking to me. Um, but maybe that could have alleviated some of these issues that you're raising where it just, it, it did feel a little tacked on. Like I appreciated what they were going for, you know, because they do want to, they, they want to have characters that you care about and they want, you know, but, um, yeah, it did feel a, a bit tacked on at the end and, and maybe could have been handled better. And, and maybe by having the characters have a specific goal from the very beginning, as opposed to just kind of stumbling into this being like, okay, I guess we're busting ghosts now. Um, uh, maybe that could have worked better. 
I mean, I wonder if it could have been, I'm just, this is off the top of my head. So, but I wonder if it could have been a thing like where uh, Phoebe had a really close relationship with her grandfather when she was really young. And then the mother, her mother and Egon had some sort of big falling out and that she hasn't seen her grandfather, you know, since she was like a little kid. And then she finds out that he died. And then she goes to try to figure out what happened to him. Like that seems like it might make a little bit more sense. I don't know if we need uh, that much so much as we just need like why why did he why was he completely cut off from the family that that needs to be better explained without you know just it being well he he decided to save the world like you can do both <laughs> I, I just I just think that when Egon shows up at the end and helps Phoebe handle the uh, the particle accelerator or whatever there needs to be some relationship that they have you know like that needs to mean something and the fact that he's just sort of this invisible presence in this movie that she's never spoken to. I do feel, I feel like, like they hard. they immediately understood each other, though. I feel like the thing mm-hmm. about Egon and Phoebe is that they immediately understood each other without necessarily having to build that back up. But I love the idea of getting rid of Trevor because he has absolutely <laughs> no purpose in this film. The whole romance with the girl that he meets. Who's going to drive diner. the car, Sarah? But Who's going to drive the car? If they had made it a story with Phoebe and the mom going to this house and, and meeting Egon and everything, and there was no boy, imagine the outcry. There were People would be <laughs> like, there's no, there's no men in this. There's no dudes. There's just the teacher. What the hell? So I think, you know, again, this is what happens when you make a movie for a focus group. It was better than I was expecting, but there is still that element where it's like, why does this character exist? Oh, because they didn't want to piss off a certain per, you know percentage of the fans. Yeah, and I I I I agree with all of that. I also think yeah, there's definitely characters that could be cut, but I would have preferred rather than cut them. Uh, you know, as we've been saying, get, give their stories. You know, give us more of a reason to keep them. Um, beyond just like, see, that was the thing. Someone early on was mentioning how they really liked uh, the mother character. And and I agree that the actress did a great, you know, as good a job as anyone could have with the material. But I feel like both the mother and Trevor, they were, th- there was no core character to them. They, they were sort of whatever the scene needed them to be at that moment. You know, for Trevor, it's like, oh, we need someone to be able to drive the car. So he's some sort of a grease monkey. Oh, we want to bring in these other people. So we have to make him this sort of emo Casanova to, to be hitting on the, the waitress at the diner, you know, fumble in a fumble fisted way. We, we need him to be sort of moody and sullen teenager. We need him to, you know, and then with the mother, it's like, well, we need some way for them to get here. So let's bring her in. We need some way for, uh, you know, someone to be inhabited by, the uh, key master or the whatever, the gatekeeper. Uh, so let's make that be the mother. But I mean, it was all just, there was no continuity with either of those characters. They're, I felt like their personalities were different from scene to scene. Um, I, I don't know. I just felt like they were really underserved by the way the script was written. And I think if they had instead given each of those two characters some compelling reason to be in the story apart from just, you know, picking up plot coupons along the way, it, it, that could have worked too, rather than having to just cut them. Are you saying Trevor's a Mary Sue? <laughs> <laughs> Had to go there. <laughs> yeah. I agree with all that though. That's yeah. That, that's a, uh, they, they were, they were just sort of pushing the plot along as opposed to 
working toward a larger arc for themselves. I also, I noticed too as well, this is like a, a, a more modern thing about climactic scenes is that they tried to give all of the bit characters some at least small thing to do in that final scene. If you compare that with the climax of the original Ghostbusters, I feel like um, some of the characters kind of get shoved aside at the end. Um, but this one, they had to make sure we have one little scene where podcast is fighting little guys. We have one little <laughs> scene where Trevor repowers the machine, you know, like I, and I get that, like I, it, it actually like shows some, some degree of care for the characters, but it's probably not as satisfying well, as it could have been. But sorry, well, yeah, but yes, yeah, so you have, you have to give all those characters something to do. And then you have the old Ghostbusters all show up mm-hmm. and get involved too. So yeah, there's like, however many, like seven or eight or something, nine heroes all involved. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's just too much. And it's like, yeah, it's part of a problem. A lot of these kinds of nostalgia rebooty kind of things have had of like, how do you make the story about the new characters when you're so in love with bringing back the old characters and giving them stuff to do too. It just becomes kind of overstuffed with all this. And it's sort of, yeah. and, And then it's like, wait, what is this story? actually about on an emotional level like whose story is this and who do we care about and why and just kind of gets lost under all these all these different competing characters and storylines and and so on uh i don't know any 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 other thoughts on changes story changes that you would have wanted to see this movie or have we have we pretty much covered it Sounds I think I've made my prescriptions, yeah. Like, we've pretty much covered it. Um, I'll just say that I really loved podcast. And <laughs> speaking as a podcaster, <laughs> I found I found him absolutely hilarious. Mm-hmm. And there's just two things in particular I want to mention. So first is where, and, and this is a character, his whole life revolves around the fact, his whole identity is that he's a podcaster. He's named himself podcast. And, <laughs> you know, he hands people, like, his whole uh, archive when he first meets them. <laughs> And, and says, you know, uh, it, the show really finds its voice around episode 46, which that just cracked me up so much because I actually because it's such a real it's such a real thing. I just interviewed um, Griffin McElroy and he said, yeah, yeah, don't listen to any episodes before 250. Like the show gets starts getting good at episode 250. And I was like, is that a is that a joke? He's like, no, no, I'm dead serious. Don't listen to anything. Don't listen to the first 250 episodes. <laughs> Um, and then just the other, the other thing is that, you know, that so, so this, this character is, his whole life is just revolves around the fact that he's a podcaster. And then at the end he meets Ray Stance and he's like, you're my subscriber. (laughs) And, uh, that was, that was great. That was was just, it was too, too real, too real. (laughs) Um, I don't know anything else that you guys liked about the movie that you want to mention. I like that they depicted, and I think that they did this on purpose. I think because they were clearly going for nostalgia and they were clearly after Gen X and some millennial audiences, you know, like young millennials um, or old millennials, I should say. Uh, I do think that they they were purposefully depicting a childhood of the 1980s that doesn't really exist anymore. Like none of these kids were shown with their phones. They were exploring abandoned mines and old buildings and abandoned factories and stuff like that. They were not, they were never shown playing video games. They were never shown watching television. They were never shown playing with it. I don't recall if I saw a single phone. And to me, I was like, you know, on some level that's unrealistic, but I kind of like it, even though I feel exploited, I feel like they are 
purposefully trying to stick their little finger in my nostalgia funny bone by <laughs> depicting childhood as this, you know, thing that that is always like it was in the 80s, which is kind of hilariously well, wrong, but it totally worked for me and it made it very charming. I, I, I'd be really curious to hear what Chris thinks about this because you know, I don't have any kids, so I don't really know what kids' lives these days are like particularly, but I, I just read these uh, news stories about like, oh, this parent was arrested for letting their kid play unattended <laughs> in the front yard and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think you don't, I'm, I don't need to be an expert in order to answer this question. I think Sarah got it exactly right. I mean, kids are basically glued to their screens, not just kids, adults are too these days. I mean, everyone is, but in particular kids, uh, so much of their life revolves around being online with their kids or like, uh, not with their kids, with, with, with their friends. And, um, you know, even even just to the point of like always having a constant chat room open. So you always have like your friend or your girlfriend like there in the room with you. Um, like but that's a thing. Do, that do your kids, do how things. much how much time do your kids spend uh, exploring abandoned minds? Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm sure they would if they were any around. But no, I, yeah, they don't. I mean, it, it it it's definitely changed. I mean, I used to go explore rock quarries and stuff when I was a kid, but I don't I don't know. I don't think kids do that these days. Maybe maybe some do, but but it was definitely a callback to an earlier time. You're right, and I think there was some lip service paid to the fact that they were either in like a a dead zone at the house or there was no Wi-Fi or something. Someone, someone made a comment about that at, at one point, And Trevor was just like, yeah, what? Well, well Tre- Trevor says, Tre- like, are, are you kidding? He says, are you kidding me? No bars. I okay. Think yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was a phone at some point. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean that, but they, 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 I think, you know, they made a point of pointing that out because otherwise it would have been like, yeah, how is no one looking for internet access or doing anything here? Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. I kind of lost my, what we were getting at, but yeah, I mean, it definitely was not a 2020. Kids, kids don't, don't explore, explore minds. My kids, uh, as far as I know, do not explore their <laughs> minds, but who knows? They may have other lives of their, that are uh, totally unknown to me. <laughs> they may be ghostbusters. Uh, Robert, any, anything else you liked about the movie that you want to mention? I, at the very beginning of this, I did say that uh, I thought the special effects uh, did live up to some of the hype. I thought the the scene in particular where the uh, devil dog turns to him in the uh, in the uh, uh, supermarket, I thought was pretty well done. I thought all that was was pretty well executed. I like the the updated look for Gozer. She, she kind of has like like that bone outfit. Um, and uh, yeah, I I have to admit, I if if I were younger, I would have loved it even more. But the uh, the gunner seat. Hmm. business i mean there was a lot of stuff in there that uh, yeah it like i I had said earlier this would be be good for kids and but a lot of the stuff that was good for kids i i also liked so uh i admit it (laughs) was this my imagination or like with the the devil dogs because in the original movie they're obviously stop action like plastic or something you know and i felt like in this they made them look more plasticky and stop actiony than they probably could have intentionally that was my impression does that did anyone same, else think that? Yeah, same here. I think that uh, the scene where the where it's on the floor is probably just a puppet. But yeah, the other scenes where it's running around, and, and I'm assuming those are done with CGI. Yeah, I guess they did. But uh, I I kind of liked it. Yeah, I'm complaining about all this. No, I liked this. I liked it too. I'm, I'm I'm just noting that I think that they they intentionally made it not look as realistic as they could have because they wanted it to sort of recall the the earlier movie. Yeah, probably. 
to be super uh, geeky on Geek's Guide here and nitpicky, I mean, in some ways it doesn't make sense that the uh, this, the marshmallows all came to life because the only reason that you had the Stay Pop Marshmallow Man in the first one is because Stance thinks about it when goes or asks them to pick their champion or whatever to, to fight against. It's not like there are marshmallow ghosts that exist in this multiverse. Like there's no reason that marshmallows would come to come to life as ghosts. You know what I mean? Like what maybe once that they, that... they discovered that form in, in 1984. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's it. All right. Fair enough. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, well, like goes, it's the same goes are coming back. So you could say like some, I'm sure you could come up with some like explanation for it, but yeah, it doesn't really make it's sort of the same thing. Like, why does Gozer ask, are you a god again? Like, yeah. you know, doesn't she remember what happened last time? Right. Like, so, so yeah, that's, that's where like the, um, the nostalgia and the reference. But don't get me wrong. I, I loved but, it. And I'm glad they did the marshmallows just to be nitpicky. I was not so sure <laughs> that that made sense, <laughs> can, you know, in canon or whatever, but yeah. It was funny. I, I was just watching a YouTube video and they were pointing out like when the um, little marshmallow guys are getting blended and uh, roasted and all that stuff like all that shit in walmart it's not plugged in you know you can't like blend (laughs) stuff up and and i was like wow that didn't even occur like with all the other stuff going on it didn't even occur to me like yeah who plugged in those blender you know i don't know yeah that was funny um but all right so let's get into the the end of the movie because this movie had a lot of um like post credits Mm -hmm. type stuff so what did everyone think of the post credits like after the after the climax of the movie, how how it wrapped up afterward. Uh, so Sarah, what did you think of that? It was all cute. I mean, it's it's kind of again like why not just put it in the main movie because the whole the whole movie is is a is a nostalgia fest. So it's just kind of strange that they felt compelled to put this stuff, you know, at the end. Um, in some ways, that well, scene... but, but they wanted the they wanted the old Ghostbusters to come that. To it to be a surprise, I guess, for that they show up at the climax. So then all the stuff involving them has to be after that, right? I guess like, so. But yeah, I mean, it was like just sort of like, like more of the same to me, I guess. Yeah, it, I, I, I'm glad it was there for, for the nostalgia reasons, too. Although I have to say some of it was felt almost like kind of uh, half-baked. Like, um, almost as though it was just like, oh, we've got this extra footage lying around that we didn't use. Let's just throw it at the end. But it yeah. wasn't like a completed scene. Um, yeah, that's what that's exactly what I felt about it. So it was a little, that was my one complaint about it. It was fun while I was in the moment, but then I was just like, what? Like, for example, the, 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 the little scene with Sigourney Weaver shocking Bill Murray, like, that was great and that was fun and I enjoyed that. But then I kind of felt like, wait, did that just like cut off? Like I felt like it ended in the middle of someone speaking and there was no resolution to that scene at all or something. And, and like the, the, I don't know, just the one with, with um, uh, Ernie Hudson's car, uh, Zedmore going into the fire house with the real estate agent at the end. I'm just like, yeah, this, but this feels like this scene, like there was no arc to the scene. It was just like a little snippet of like a moment more so than even I know yeah. I know that's what after credit scenes are but but I mean there still has to be some sort of resolution to the scene and instead it was just like oh we just like dipped in for like two seconds of conversation and then dipped out yeah yeah that that one was super weird to me honestly yeah. like I, I don't know anything about 
about it, but like what I was imagining in my head was like, they're like, Ernie Hudson, would you like to be in this movie? And he's like, I'll only do it on the condition that I get to give a speech about entrepreneurship <laughs> and like applying yourself or something. <laughs> like that's, that's how it felt to me is like, and they're like, okay, um, okay, we'll put it at the end, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert, go ahead. Uh, sorry. I, I was uh, eager to, to say that it just, it, yeah, that felt more like an exposition. Like, I wonder, yeah, they could have done something creative where it was just like a mini, like 30 minute, th- excuse me, 30 second, <laughs> 30 second sketch involving Annie Potts character who barely got any, she was only in the very beginning mm-hmm. and, and Winston, you know, maybe involving thing. But I mean, I think they, they put a little too much stock into having him go downstairs and go past the machine and you see the red light blinking. And, and like, am I supposed to say at that point, like, you mean they're considering a sequel? Like, I'm pretty sure I knew that in the opening <laughs> credits. Um, can, can I say something else about the credits and not to derail this? Because there's more Actually, to talk wait, about. Before, before that, could I just say, like, I thought it was established that that um, firehouse had been turned into a Starbucks. Yeah. But, but then at the end, it's like just sort of an abandoned firehouse. They did say that at one too. point in the movie. Yeah. Okay. So, so Robert, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, did just going back to something I had mentioned about how Sony seems to create products rather than films sometimes. Did you notice how the the uh, song at the end of the movie is sung by um, uh, McKenna Grace, the young lady who plays Phoebe? So I feel like they're trying to use this to kickstart her uh, her musical career. <laughs> uh, nothing against her. I just I just thought that was a little strange because the, the song seemed very very serious. And about like heartbreak and stuff like that. Whereas the other Ghostbusters songs have typically been kind of silly, like have them throwing parties for a bunch of children, like that kind of that kind of tone. And this one was like, you broke my heart and now I'm a ghost. I don't know if any of you actually. Listen. <laughs> I, I, I confess I did not listen. Yeah, you don't need to. And nothing against her. She did a great job. If she wants to sing a song, fine. It just felt a little <laughs> odd to me. Yeah, I I it, I don't know like the 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 very end all that stuff it just felt like yeah like not only was this movie trying to please like like maybe trying too hard like definitely trying too hard to please like all possible fan constituencies but also <laughs> maybe trying too hard to please all the actors and everyone involved you know it seems like it was like christmas they're just like handing out presents to to everybody in a way that didn't necessarily serve the <laughs> the narrative or or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'll just mention, since we were talking about the music, something I forgot to say at the very beginning of the show. Now, maybe I'm the only one in the world who did this, but I actually owned on cassette back in the 80s the soundtrack to the first Ghostbusters, and I (laughs) played the hell out of that thing. I remember for like, (laughs) there was one summer, it must have been whatever the summer was following when the movie came out, I just listened to that all the time on my little uh, GE tape recorder, and it was not even really good. I mean, most of the music was terrible, but it was, you know, the, the, the incidental music, like cleaning up the town and uh, you know, the, the, the song that plays when all the beams of mystical light are going through the city that do, 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 you know, that sort of Caribbean melody behind it. Um, I listened to that over and over and over again. So uh, the music was actually very important to me too. Back. I was I was going to say, I'm not sure if it's the, what were you talking about? The scene where Sigourney Weaver wakes up after she's been possessed and the front of her apartment's blown out and all the like ghost lights are streaking across the city. Like the music that they play there really, I find so like haunts. It's like, I think it's saying please. And like, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I felt like this movie was maybe missing something like that. Where uh, there's just something, yeah, like so spooky and yeah, that's it's just I sort of like it's I don't know, magic it, is the name of the track. I yeah, think, but... it like elevates. I don't know. Somehow it elevates that movie. That that one scene, it just has such a 
different tone to to the rest of the movie. And and then, yeah, I was sort of missing something like like that in this one. Um. All right. So, oh, I guess I guess we're we're pretty much we're pretty much out of time. But any other any other thoughts on uh, any other topics that anyone wanted to bring up before we uh, start wrapping this up? I feel like I would like a steampunk Ghostbusters movie that's set in like the 1800s. That would make me very happy. That could be cool. Okay, we'll put, that, <laughs> we'll put that out into the universe. Um, I don't know if, just, just as I was doing research, I came across this thing that I guess, I guess I'll mention. So it says, in the early 1990s, following the release of Ghostbusters 2, Dan Aykroyd wrote a script for a third film tentatively titled Ghostbusters 3 Hellbent. In the script, the Ghostbusters are transported to a parallel universe version of Manhattan called Manhattan, <laughs> where the people and places are, quote, hellish versions of Earth, and the characters meet and confront the devil. Uh, Neat. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so Sarah, you you would have you would have wanted to see Ghostbusters 3 Hellbent? All for it. It's so sad that, you know, you have to have a hit in order to make another movie. It's so sad. It makes me so sad because, you know, in real life, sometimes you have, you know, a bad, uh, like, obviously, the sequel to Wonder Woman, for example, was bad. They're still making another one. But, you know, often that doesn't happen. It's like, you know, no matter how good the first one was, if the second one tanks, nobody ever wants to do it again. And, you know, so then we're denied the the. Manhattan that we deserve. Right. I, I have to s- confess, I'm not really confident that would have been a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, but th- this this is the thing is, is Dan Aykroyd was definitely swinging for the fences with that idea. And yeah, it's, it's, it's sad that, uh, uh, that the movie business is such that bonker stuff like that is is less likely to happen because i feel uh, like it would be because of the high probability it would be full of such great new york jokes though and that's one of the things that made the 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 movies so appealing and one of the things i think that afterlife you know lacks obviously afterlife doesn't is not set in new york city and so it doesn't have that same energy and Mm. you know like i loved that about 2016 as well I, i felt like you know it was very realistic in terms of what it felt like to live there and the fact that, you know, if they had wanted to rent the firehouse, it would have been something <laughs> stupid, like 30 grand a month, you know, things like that. So like, I, I really, you know, I feel like there would have been a lot of potential. There is still so much potential there to make New York jokes that, you know, that I feel like that a actually, third Ghostbusters would have, would have really gotten there. That actually reminds me one of the, uh, one of the best comments I saw, and I don't remember now where I saw this It was like on Twitter or something, but they said that the reason that the first Ghostbusters movie works is because the characters, cause it takes this like crazy supernatural thing and treats it as this sort of job, this working class job that gets boring after a while. Yeah. And that it's that, that tension between the, like, um, the sort of, uh, what's the word? Um, mundaneness the mu- the mundanity of the of the job that you do every day that you're kind of tired of doing and to the like crazy ghost stuff that that's where that's where a lot of the humor comes mm-hmm. from and that when you remove remove it from new york and make it not about working you know like working a job but but have it be this whole family secret saga kind of thing it just makes it different you know you sort of lose a lot of that that humor that comes out of that contrast there I don't know what anyone thinks about that. I just thought that was an interesting observation. Yeah. 
I think the scene in the first one where um, a guy just gets into a cab and, and just mumbles, take me somewhere. And then we re- the camera pans over and it's a skeleton, but the passenger doesn't even realize it because he's off in his own little world. I mean, to me, that was a great New York moment. Yeah. Uh, that really, yeah, exemplifies this. Just the city's crazy enough. Yeah, maybe we got ghosts too. Now we got we got bed bugs and rats too. What do you want from me? You know, it's that <laughs> kind of attitude. Yeah. Uh, oh, I guess I'll also just mention that this movie actually, this uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, it actually made less money than Ghostbusters twenty sixteen, which made two hundred thirty million, and this has made one hundred ninety seven million. Ha ha. Uh, at least so far. Revenge. Wait for it, Sarah. Wait for those, Sarah. The, the thing is that I think this movie apparently is considered much more of a success because it only cost seventy-five million. Oh, and the previous one cost cost almost twice as much to make. So <laughs> that may happens. be the future for Go- for Ghostbusters movies. Is you know if, if they can keep the cost down, you know that might be part of the secret. I mean, in the grand tradition of camp, out. that is the only reason that camp gets made. So it that actually makes perfect sense. So, so for uh, just the uh, the low, low price of seventy five million dollars, <laughs> you two could make your own Ghostbusters movie. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. So why don't we uh, get get into some final thoughts? So, uh, Chris, final thoughts on Ghostbusters? Oh goodness. Well, um, I think really uh, the only thing I haven't said is is something I'll agree with what you said. I this no, you know this one did not leave me. Uh, really hoping for a sequel if they do make one i hope that they do take it in a very different direction though um and that it you know continues to focus on on phoebe's character because i think it was great um i'll also mention that if you know somehow by some stroke of luck they do make a sequel to the 2016 one um I, i will just uh my only trepidation there is that i i loved all the little interspersed credit scenes during the credits but if you stayed around to the very 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 end after all the credits there was a scene where they're listening to a recording of something and they're like what is zool so it looks like (laughs) if that's where they were planning to go after the 2016 one back to zool that looks like retreading old ground but uh, hopefully (laughs) they won't and if they do make a new one it'll be as sort of fresh and original as that one was yeah Uh, uh robert final thoughts yeah, I uh, like I, I, I had said I, I think I would give this maybe like a like a two and a half out of four, maybe two stars out of four. But if I had kids, I would totally show it to them. I think they would enjoy it, and um, uh, I think it's it, it is well executed despite the um, what I felt was a little too much over reliance on some sentimentality that didn't really uh, earn. So, um, like I kind of just shrug at and say, yeah, this is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not totally eager for a sequel either. And uh, just hearing the various ideas that this panel has come up with for different directions that a, a Ghostbusters type of film could do, that, that interests me far more than another adventure here. But, but I don't know. If somebody really, if some screenwriter out there really like loves and respects Phoebe and wants to continue her story, I, they will get my money again. And Sarah, final thought. I personally demand a sequel to Ghostbusters 2016. I will go to my deathbed hoping for that sequel. So, And then you'll come back as a ghost. Yes, I will <laughs> haunt the fuck out of every incel. Like, how dare you? You are the reason why I didn't get a fucking sequel to this, my favorite Ghostbusters film. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. And so I guess like, like I said, I wasn't blown away by this. Uh, and I would be much, I, I wish the third act had gone, had, had, had done something different, but at, at the same time, like I, I enjoyed it. I was in a good mood after I watched it. It was fun revisiting all the Ghostbusters characters and seeing Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson again and every, and you know, uh, Harold Ramis again. And so like, well, sort of, but, uh, uh, seeing the character again anyway. Um, and, and so like, as much as I, I would sort of rail against cheap nostalgia, uh, I can't pretend to be immune to cheap nostalgia. And so to the extent that this is, 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 is really just cheap nostalgia, it's, it's cheap nostalgia that kind of worked on me to a, <laughs> a significant mm-hmm. degree. Mm-hmm. It's um, like pizza. Yeah, I, Even when it's bad, it's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, totally concur that, uh, hope to hope they go in a different, hope they explore new grounds, uh, if they make another Ghostbusters movie. Um, all right, cool. But we got to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Sarah Lynn Mishner, Christopher M. Savasco, and Robert Rapino. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Sarah Lynn Mishner, Christopher M. Savasco, and Robert Rapino for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. I also want to thank Zach Chapman for sponsoring today's show. Remember to support his horror comic series House of Blood Volume 1 over on Kickstarter. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.